0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio four. Today you can hear Open Country with me, Helen Mark. For this week's Open Country, I've come to one of South Devon's longest and most spectacular estuaries, the Dart. Now, this is an area which is an absolute honeypot for tourists during the summer months. But to come now on this clear, crisp December morning, I'll get perhaps a different view of this spectacular place where the sun is glinting off the water where the trees grow right down to the water's edge and are only parted by the little villages that are dotted along the shoreline. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take a journey along the Dart and meet some of the people for whom this place is a place of work every day of the year and to discover too about the fascinating habitats and the long and rich maritime history of the estuary The best way to do this is on board one of the little boats that ply their way up and down the dart. And David Eggis and Jason Wickenden, you are going to be my two skippers. That's the idea. So here we have the little Dittisham ferry, and we can climb aboard quite easily, actually. straight off the pontoon and into the boat.
2: nice and level.
1: So I'll just actually grab your hand, Jason, just to be on the safe (laughs) side at this stage. You've been well trained. Thank you. And two, what you have to do is navigate the waters, but also all the pleasure boats that are about the place. So yeah,
2: you do have to have some lo- uh, local knowledge. Uh, this time of year is not so bad, obviously. Uh, during the summer months, it gets very, very hectic down here, as you can imagine. Uh, and you need to know your rules of the road.
1: Our first port of call is going to be at Kiln Gate because we want to meet up with Pat Tucker, who works the water with his um, oyster farm. That's right. So, we- take us there, David. Let's go see Pat. <laughs> To our little ferry. This is in the middle of the dart alongside the oyster fishing boat and Pat Tucker's on board that and he's just caught the rope that David's thrown him and we're, we're just tying ourselves together. There. Here
2: we are.
1: Lovely. Morning. Pat. Here we
0: are.
1: Yes. Now, hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Lovely. To, well your hands oh no, are still cold and him. damp.
0: <laughs> I get used to it.
1: <laughs> you know, we're sort of in the, catching you in the midst of your catch pads.
0: Yeah, yeah. We're just uh, grading oysters for the French market at the moment. The yeah. French Christmas, the, the oyster market is huge
1: and you have to be part of that if you want to survive uh, as an oyster fisherman
0: no but it's good business we do sell in the UK as well but um, we have a big this is like a big Christmas payday for us it not
1: where we go <laughs> in the country <laughs> no, there's always somebody around. with the chainsaw, chainsaw <laughs> or it just on, yeah. goes with the territory yeah. the country's not a quiet place no. now these are large net bags actually that's very solid netting and they're yeah. about half full of the wrinkly shelled oysters
0: Pacific rock oysters there.
1: Right. where have you taken these from?
0: Along this side, this is our nursery bed here, but we've got several other sites up the river as well, above Didisham at Gorro Point.
1: How did you get into oyster fishing, Pat?
0: Well, I've been a fisherman for years. I used to work on crabbers, used to skip with the big crabs in Dartmouth. About 12 years ago, what was Devon Sea Fisheries, which is now IFCA, there used to be an oyster fishery years ago. They reinstated the oyster fishery as sort of a bit of diversification for fishermen. A few people picked it up. My business partner, George Congdon, did it for a couple of years, and then he invited me, did I want to go on board as well and do it with him. So we've been doing it for, I've been doing it for about nine years now.
1: And how long does it take to establish the oysters to the point where they get to, you know, a sellable product?
0: Um, yeah, they're all grown on trestles on the, on the river, in these bags, and we buy them in a 2.4 millimetres, they're tiny, and it takes average two to three years to grow to market size, but they're grown at different rates, so we're constantly sieving them and grading them and taking the big ones out and putting the small ones back.
1: Also, oh, there's a lot of management in it?
0: Yeah, to a certain point, then we can sort of leave them... For half the year, and then at Christmas we take them off and sell them. But so when they're small, there's a lot of sieving and grading, and actual yeah, there's a bit quite a bit of husbandry involved.
1: And yeah. I noticed too, actually, just there, you, is your hand bleeding?
0: It is, yeah. The edges of the oysters are like oh, razors. So you have to Always wear gloves.
2: Yeah.
1: Can I take a closer look at yeah, one yeah. of the oysters? I know these are going off to France, but basically, what them... I do is, as I grade them,
0: I pick the bag up and tip it out on the back here. And as you can see, there's all different sizes.
1: And they are, I have collect one up, and they, they fill the palm of my hand quite easily. The lovely, almost like teardrop shape, that's it, it should it? Be, that's
0: exactly what it should be, teardrop shape, cupped on this side, and the other side should be flat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a nicely shaped oyster. They don't mm-hmm. all grow as well as that. We try and get them to that sort of shape and size. Basically, what I'm doing is picking the bigger ones out. That's going to the British market.
1: Okay, that's the bucket there. Yeah.
0: These buckets here are the French markets. They prefer a smaller oyster. The ones that are too small go back in that bucket, and they go back on the river to grow on. But it's and been do they
1: grow fast because they're in the dart and everything is right for them? The
0: dart is is good. There's, it's good produces a lot of algae, the phytoplankton which they feed on, and it's quite a deep river as well, so it stays fairly warm in the winter. The temperature in the deeper water doesn't drop right down.
1: I'm with you on a lovely winter's day. It's cold, but mm. it, it's calm. So I would say dealing with the weather might be just one of the challenges yeah. of being an oyster fisherman on the dart.
0: So, um, the weather isn't normally an issue. The main problems are water quality and disease. Um, water quality basically is sewage going in the river because mm-hmm. we're sampled every month. We have to send samples or every month which tested for E. coli. We have to have 90% compliance with their um, criteria If we get two bad tests, we go 90%, we shut down. That's it, finished. We can't produce oysters. And you have no
1: control over that?
0: No, it's entirely out of our hands. It's in the hands of other people.
1: And you mentioned disease. Are oysters prone to disease? They are
0: prone to disease. France has had big problems the last couple of years with the virus. It's actually wiped out whole, huge farms. It's actually a herpes virus.
1: It paints a very unpredictable picture, doesn't it? For the oyster farmer is... Well,
0: I'm still a fisherman. I fish for spider crabs in the summer and I fish for bass and I've got prawn pots out in the winter and different things for different seasons. We want to build the oysters up as much as we can because we've got a good site here and we're producing good oysters. But... Still hanging on to the fishing, so we've got that back up and rather than going fully for the oysters. We're frightened if we did that and get hit by the disease, we'd be wiped out.
1: But it must be a lovely sight, isn't it? When you pull the bags of oysters out and you just know oh.
0: the best sight is when they're on a pallet wrapped up with a label <laughs> on, and it's going to France. <laughs> that's three years, that's the termination of three years' work.
1: Oh, it's oh, yeah. a long time, isn't it, to wait for the yeah. cash? Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned that oysters do very well in estuarine environments where there's plenty of food and shelter. So I'm going to leave you now, Pat, and take a boat a little way back up the river to meet Nigel Mortimer, the estuaries officer at the South Devon area of Outstanding Natural Beauty, who's going to reveal more about the habitats and wildlife of the estuary.
0: He knows his stuff.
1: all the way down the dart so far you can see how man uses the waterway and there are pontoons and lots of boats moored everywhere you go but there is one little pontoon here and basking in the winter sunshine are five grey seals oh they just raise their head to look at me oh she's not very interesting put the head back down again so that, that's lovely. There are a lot of seals in the estuary, David.
2: Uh, there's a place called the Mewstone just outside the mouth of the river and it is a breeding ground. Uh, but they do come into the river all the way up as far as Totteness chasing these salmon and sea trout. Uh, but during the winter months, they won't do this during the summer. on This is their favourite spot, this pontoon here.
1: I've had to come a little bit further back up the dart because mm-hmm. as the tide is coming in, so the mudflats are Covering gradually up. being covered. Yes. Yeah. So, Nigel, you and I have come to just near the village of Dittisham, Dittisham. Yeah. which, you know, inhabitants live right on the very shore of the dart. Mm-hmm. Oh, spectacular views for them every single day. You only get glimpses of the estuary as you're travelling along, just a little bit at a time because it weaves about. Yes. So... How long is it?
3: The estuary itself is about 12 miles long. And it was formed during the last ice ages with the energy of the rivers flowing through the rocks, carving their way deep into these deep valleys. And then after the last ice age... The, the sea level rose by a whole 120 metres, flooding these river valleys. So it's a drowned river valley, or what is called a rear.
1: But of course mm-hmm. this is a very diverse habitat, with water and land, woodland round all you know, the estuary and up the creeks.
3: Well, the, the, the main habitats of the Dart Estuary are the, the cliffs and the rocks towards the lower end, some of them very, very sheltered from the, the wave action you get on the open coast, You've got the very extensive mud flats, you've got the, the water itself, of course, and in along the edge you've got quite a lot of in places reed bed and salt marsh. And also another particular feature of estuaries, particularly in the southwest, is this very clean edge of the trees coming down to the water's edge. You've got this salt pruning. Where the, the leaves of the trees come down to the, the water and the salt reaches up and sort of kills those leaves. So you get this very, very clean line.
1: Yes, yeah, as though it's been manicured.
3: Yeah, when man. you go on the ferries here, they always uh-huh. joke about that. That's what the Harbour <laughs> Authority do in the winter when they've got nothing better to do.
1: <laughs> so, those habitats from cliffs to reeds and salt marsh and, and the forests, what creatures, you know, say this is the perfect place for us to be? What, what's there?
3: Oh. Crazily enough, estuaries are actually a very difficult place for a lot of wildlife to live in because the salt, the saltiness is changing all the time. You know, you've got fresh water coming at the top, salt water coming in with the tides. If you can survive here, it's a really good place to live. So estuaries are quite oddly species poor. But the species that do live here are here in astronomical numbers.
1: Hence the wonderful place to be growing oysters, as we saw Pat Tucker doing. And those
3: oysters will be feeding on the plankton floating around in the water. Because with all these nutrients, there's huge amounts of plant plankton and animal plankton feeding on that.
1: So I want to explore with you this particular habitat along the edge of the the water. So we're going to have to squelch about a bit, aren't we? Yes. Which would be good fun. But... um, (laughs) Well, hopefully we don't fall flat on
3: my face. The, the mud has a suction, so uh, be careful not to leave your wellies behind.
1: Now, you have a trowel and a little net, so what's your intention? Right. I'm just going to take a,
3: a sample of mud that we're going to wash in the, the water and see what beasties we'll end up with. Lovely. So, let's put our sample into the water. OK,
1: so tip it out of the net. All right, so our little tray of water has this lump of black estuarine mud in it. And Nigel, you're just very gently poking about.
3: On a a really lucky sample, we might notice one or two of the tiny, tiny little threadworms. And occasionally you'll see uh, ragworms, and they're Mm. they're like the lions and tigers of the, the mud world. They've got big jaws on the front, and they've got all these paddles right down the length of the body so that they can swim through the water and push their way through the mud.
1: And again, that's the whole part of this wonderful cycle.
3: Well, let's be honest. Estuarine mud is dirty and it's smelly, Okay, (laughs) But there's a huge amount going on there. It's a whole ecosystem in its own right. With every tide and the river bringing down all the the bits and pieces from the catchment, what we call the detritus, it's the the litter of leaves and dead animals and, and things... And there are billions of billions of bacteria breaking the organic matter down. The mud flats are reckoned to be as productive as a uh, same area of rainforest, believe it or not. But you know, whereas rainforests are really quite sexy, mud flats aren't <laughs> quite the same to look at. But in the surface of the mud, in just three teaspoons of the mud, there are reckoned to be as many bacteria as there are people on the planet.
1: Oh, what a statistic! Yeah. Nigel, it's wonderful eye-opener into the, the life of the estuary that, that you've given us. Thank you. That was you're just welcome. wonderful. We're going to join our own little boat now and continue our journey down the Dart Estuary again, but I shall look at it with different eyes now. Well,
3: while you're down there, keep an eye out for the birds and maybe grey seals.
1: David, you know, are you working on these waters nearly every day of the year?
2: Pretty much every day, yes. We work a lot harder in the summer than we do in the winter. You've got to get the hours in when it's there. But it's just a beautiful place to work. I mean, this is my office, and I spend most of my time on a 90-year-old paddle steamer going up and down the river, and it's just one of the most beautiful, unspoilt spots in the country.
1: Is there a lot of employment opportunity for local people in terms of the waters of the Dart?
2: Like the rest of the country, especially coastal areas where when you are so reliant on the summer season, it can be difficult, but doing our best to stretch the tourism season further and further every Mm. year.
1: But it's connected with the waters of the estuary.
2: The river is the lifeblood of the town and the surrounding area.
1: We couldn't possibly spend time on the dart and not look at its immensely rich maritime history so we've come down into Dartmouth itself and we're going to head for Bayard's Cove and I'm going to meet up with David Lingard who is a former Royal Naval Commander but he has had a lifelong interest in the history of this maritime landscape. David Lingard and I, were have taken shelter in the Bayards Cove fort. It has these lovely little archways and you can see out across the dart. And I know you have a great interest in the history of the dart estuary here and the the fact that it was a really significant trading harbour dating back how far?
4: Well, it goes goes back a, a very long way. The most we can probably trace is actually just shortly after the Norman Conquest. So there was a lot of trading going on literally between... People either side of the channel but then that also developed a little bit later down to Bordeaux and that of course was a wine trade now that was direct to Dartmouth and they were coming the ships were coming in through the estuary into the harbour but of course there were no easy way ways out of Dartmouth or for that matter Kingswear because it's very hilly so therefore if you were needing to take stuff further into the country you would have to either transship or your vessels would have to actually go up to Totnes where it's much flatter. But Totnes, I think, was probably seen as a very important link into the rest of the country.
1: And what was, what product was going up and down?
4: It would have been the sort of international trades. I mentioned wine and later on, of course, extra things that were coming in from America, sugar and so on. But also timber, and actually probably, but I suspect stone, because if you wanted to build anything substantial, you couldn't take very much of it along the roads of the day. It was much easier to transfer it by sea,
1: and they could have ships because it's a very deep estuary.
4: It's a good deep estuary. That's mm. the key, that you could bring ships of some size in here.
1: So this being a deep water harbour, it's a place where boats have mustered for yeah. trade, absolutely. Yeah. But then, how did it grow? Because Dartmouth grew yeah, and grew it, with that trade. Yes it did.
4: Indeed it did. Life moved on through, through the 1400s, 1500s. A lot of nations were fishing for cod off the Newfoundland banks. The ships would take people, clothing, tools, etc., out to Newfoundland. The ships that were catching the cod out there would leave some of their team ashore, who would then do the gutting, the drying of the cod, and also squeezing the livers, actually, to extract a thing called train oil, It was actually for lamps and so on. And most of those products were needed down in the Mediterranean or Iberian Peninsula generally. The third leg was back here. Now, initially, that brought back fruit and good things like that. But later that was bringing port back to this country. So the triangular trade was out to Newfoundland, down to Spain and Portugal, and then back to Dartmouth again.
1: But what incredibly brave fishermen and sailors to to make that sort of voyage across the Atlantic in small boats.
4: It must have been horrendous conditions at times for them then. So certainly that continued for hundreds of years.
1: So this, this place, Dartmouth, is a rallying point, but also right up until... The Second World War.
4: But yes, you come to 1939 and a lot was going on. A lot of shipbuilding for a start. Then, of course, was the huge build-up towards D-Day. And on the 5th of June 1944, 485 ships left. From Dartmouth. From Dartmouth. To, Very take, l- part to take part the in the, the D-Day
1: invasion. invasion. Wow. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it, it as is. we look out across the waters, David? What is it about the Dartmouth? Harbour, the, the estuary that gives you such a thrill? Because when you're talking about it, you do sound as though you're absolutely seeing every moment through history out here. I think it's partly
4: personal in the sense that, having been in the Navy, I've also had a lot to do with you know, bringing small vessels into here and seeing it from all sorts of different angles and, and again, trying to imagine what it must have been like in, in days gone by.
1: Just coming out of the fort and looking up down across the dark, we see the entrance out to the channel.
4: And it's That's it's great. a lovely view.
1: So there's a passenger ferry, you know, even at this time of year, going up and down, plying its trade. And again, on the far side of the marina, hundreds and hundreds of boat masts, all there glinting and, and their ropes rattling in the breeze. It's amazing. It's
4: iconic. And I mean, although we talk of the history and we go back through the you know, battles and everything else that's happened here, this is now a wonderful sailing port. And there, as you so rightly say, there's a vast number of masts of boats of different sizes across in the marina. There's another marina, of course, further up. Also, it has developed from whatever it might have been. So what we have
1: today There's a wonderful naval history about the Dart Estuary but actually there is a continuing naval presence and I've come back up from Dartmouth to the Britannia Royal Naval College and I'm standing down on the pontoon there's some work ongoing (laughs) training exercise is it? we're in the middle of a training exercise (laughs) how lovely, well I'm with Lieutenant Commander Sue Bryson and out on the water I can hear voices being carried towards us from the boats that yes. are out there. So explain to me what's happening. Well,
5: it's one of our uh, many training exercises that we use the River Dart for. Obviously, being a, a maritime military force, we want to make sure that all our cadets utilise that environment and become comfortable on the water. This is ideal in that the River Dart is is confined in some respects, but also has the estuary and has the sea that is accessible to us. We do training exercises like this for lots of cadets. In this case, it happens to be the Royal Fleet Auxiliary who are practising and being put through their paces with regard to a command and leadership exercise on the water.
1: So there are two boats? Two boats, two, two what's boats. what's happening on the different boats?
5: They're each involved with their own crew. They're, they're practising this sort with of their, their maritime skills and also their uh, leadership and coordination and that they're trying to make sure the boats are operated effectively to be able to combat different challenges that we put towards them
1: the exercise is ongoing out on the water now a small group of people have headed out in a smaller boat so again that
5: yes they're using all skills and different types of craft the cadets are trained on both the sort of the the picket boats you see there which are twin screw power driven vessels we've also got the smaller whalers which you can see but also the the cadets can be trained on yacht uh, and all sorts all sorts of manner of boats
1: and how long has there been a naval training college on the dart Originally, there were two actual wooden hulks, old ships, that were brought into
5: the River Dark. That's in 1863, if I've got my history right. Those were Britannia and Hindustan, hence the name that's now gone to the, to the college. When those became old and obsolete and the Navy was changing and they recognised the need for a bigger college, taking on more cadets, then the actual current college was built in 1905. Um, so that was allowed to accommodate the cadets in a much more permanent fashion.
1: And that's up on the hill... behind behind us us. and then there are lots of buildings actually closer down to the shore and all your pontoons and and jetties and this training exercise happening before us how fascinating to see that yes it's great but Uh, what they can learn
5: here will help them out on the open sea yes very much so so all the skills that they start on the small boats are equally applicable to the to the frigates and ships that we have they'll be obviously be employed on when they leave this training environment to go out and do their job at sea with the with the royal navy
1: and is it a big college? I mean, how many people are coming out onto the water to use it this way? And It is a big college.
5: We, we normally have a sort of population of about 300 cadets, those include international cadets. And did
1: you do some of your training on the dart?
5: I did, yes, a long time ago, <laughs> um, about uh, 20, 22 years ago, but I was on the dart in uh, dinghies in the picket boats that you see here. So it's a wonderful place to train. I enjoyed it as a cadet and I, I enjoyed it as a staff officer having had this great
1: opportunity to come back. Mm. And it, I don't know, you probably don't have time to take in the beauty of the dart when you're really having to think carefully about what you're doing, or do you? Uh, we do. Thank- <laughs> thankfully,
5: it's a, it is a great location to be here, and quite a privilege to work here because it is beautiful. I think as a cadet, you're probably your heads down learning, learning the lessons, and your and your training is quite intense. But even then, I think they appreciate the fact that they're in a they're in a beautiful environment. We're seeing it at its best in the sunshine and a relatively calm day. Now the boats are getting quite close to us now. Yep. So on the boats, what happens with regards to the different crews? So that Each each person within the, the crew on board will take turns practising being the captain, effectively, the, the XO, the number two, and uh, the navigator and officer watch. And that structure is uh, a micro of how ships operate at sea. So each person uh, within that are training to actually take positions and understand what those roles are. So the navigator will make sure that the boat is in a safe area, they have enough water underneath the keel. The officer watch will be driving, actually physically driving the boat up and down the river, and the captain and the XO will be taking command of the different scenarios that are put towards them as part of the training
1: exercise. Of all the landscapes that we have visited with open country, on land or on water, I don't think I've ever seen yeah, those places used in such a way. It gives you an idea about the great versatility of our landscapes yes. uh, for people's working lives, yes. whether they're hauling out oysters, or sifting through the mud, or training to protect a nation
5: I agree I
1: that, is, that is fantastic to see, thank you so much for giving right? us this sort of access <laughs> no it's a real privilege it really is